Good evening, LCM. Good evening. We're about to embark on a study of the book of Acts. So it's been about 15 years since I taught through this book in this state anyway. And uh, we're going to start with an overview tonight. So next week we'll pick up our traditional format where we go line by line through a chapter at a time. Tonight is just an overview of the book of Acts. The project that we're embarking on will likely take about 30 weeks to complete. During our journey, we believe that you will see the hand of God's leading in our midst. And I just want to say there really couldn't be any more important work for us to engage in during this period of our own history. Recently, our church has been enlightened by specific marching orders for God's plan in our near future in Eastern Europe and then unto the Middle East and then unto the city of Jerusalem. The study that we're engaging in will no doubt bring our practices and our doctrines into sharper focus. As we reverse the road from Rome to Jerusalem in the coming decades. Now, when we begin a book of the Bible, it would be customary for any study to spend extensive time examining the authorship of the book, like Acts. However, any good Bible dictionary or commentary will provide you with that background. Here's an example of what you will find on this slide. As you're looking at this slide, the inscription in the P75 manuscript reads the gospel from Luke and is dated between 150 and 200 AD by most scholars. There is no reason to go through all of the ancient witnesses since the majority agree. If Luke authored the gospel, then it follows that he also authored Acts, and that fact is not seriously contested. It's true. For now, let's just say that Luke wrote Acts and did so as a companion to the gospel of Luke. Amen. It would also be customary for any study to examine the literary quality of the book of Acts, as it displays some of the most intricate and elegant Greek in the entire Bible. But again, almost all good biblical resources are going to provide you with that information. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are the two longest works in the New Testament. And they actually form one unified book. Hey, yeah. Check out this next slide. It's entitled Two Scrolls, One Work. Come on. On the left side of the screen, you can see the Gospel of Luke. You guys know that it has 24 chapters, 1,151 verses, and nearly 26,000 words in the book. On the right side, we have a comparison with the book of Acts, containing 28 chapters. 1,007 verses and 24,250 words. Look at this quote here by Bruce M. Metzger. The normal Greek literary scroll seldom exceeded 35 feet in length. What, what was the max of a regular scroll? How many feet? 35 feet. There you go, 35 feet. Ancient authors would therefore divide a long literary work into several books. 
each of which could be accommodated into one scroll. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts would each have filled an ordinary papyrus roll of, 21, or of 31 or 32 feet in length. Doubtless, this is one of the reasons why Luke Acts was issued in two volumes instead of one. So for now, let's just say that both Luke and Acts display gifted mastery of the Greek language. They are actually one work, separated because of length into two separate scrolls. That deserves several more wows. Yeah. Now, it would be customary for any student to exhaust themselves in an attempt to provide a timeline for the events and corresponding dates of the details within the book of Acts. In fact, many have undertaken the task and almost none of them agree with each other. If you want to see one that has done uh, responsibly and with accuracy within a plus or minus margin of only a few years, then we recommend Philip Schaff's version. However, that is not our focus. Luke wrote an orderly account with emphasis on the relation relationship of events to one another. Apparently, inspiration of the author did not lead him to give us fixed dates for every event. Come on choosing instead to emphasize the relationship between the events themselves. What we can say in regard to the timeline is that the difficulty with the exact dates starts with a controversy on the starting points, like the birth of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, both of which have a plus or minus of a few years. Those difficulties compound as you place Paul's Arabia experience and his various trips to Jerusalem within the text. However, there are some fixed dates that are attested to by both biblical and secular sources, and we will point to those as we proceed through the book. For now, you should think of Acts as a period of time of approximately 30 years. The story picks up with the ascension of Jesus and ends with Paul living in Rome. The universal historical testament is that Paul was killed by Nero at some point after the close of the book of Acts. So about how long is the period of history for Acts? 30 years. That's kind of neat. That's about as long as Jennifer and I have been serving Jesus. Come on. Look, when you're thinking about the book of Acts, especially its ending point, you have to consider Nero. Nero was emperor from 54 to 68 AD, and he died in June of 68. Well, that leads you to a few conclusions. Because Acts does not mention the Jewish revolt of A.D. 67. Acts does not mention the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And Acts does not mention Paul's execution under Nero. So for a variety of reasons then, it's assumed that the book of Acts was compiled around A.D. 62. This would be prior to Paul's execution that would be in the following years. That's a pretty good date, and we're going to point to markers along the way in the book of Acts that are attested to both through biblical historians and also through secular historians. But rather than talk to you all night about the things we are not going to cover, we thought that we might look at what we are going to focus on. That begins with the continuity of the book of Luke and Acts, which we regard as a singular book. So we're going to begin in Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1. Inasmuch 
as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So in the Gospel of Luke, which was addressed to the most excellent Theophilus, Luke wrote an orderly account of all that Jesus accomplished through his earthly ministry. When he addressed Theophilus, he did so in a manner consistent with an address to important officials. It is the exact phrase that Acts 26.25 uses to address most excellent Festus. Additionally, the account was concerning things that Theophilus had already been taught. So he was a God-seeker, if not a full-blown believer, at the writing of the Gospel of Luke. Now the ancient histories have made various attempts to assert more information about Theophilus than is recorded in the biblical record. Here is the oldest of these. So check out this next slide that we have for you, entitled Clementine Recognition. This is from about 150 A.D. It says the following. So that Theophilus, who was more exalted than all the men of power in that city, with all eagerness of desire, consecrated the great palace of his house under the name of a church. And a chair was placed in it for the apostle Peter by all the people. And the whole multitude assembled daily to hear the word, believed in the healthful doctrine which was avouched by the efficacy of cures. So guys, reading this together and listening to what is said here, you guys understand something. While the idea that Theophilus was an important official is probably true from the scriptural record, and he was most likely a convert, we have no idea if the rest of the account is true. And we only included it to give you a possible, to give you a possibly suggest, to give you a possible suggestion in the middle of the second century. What we want you to be aware of is the continuity between the opening of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts. There are some very, very important connections between these two books. So catch the continuity. This is Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do, say to do, to do, and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Clearly, Acts is the second volume of Luke's work. It is scroll number two in the same story that began on scroll number one. Acts should be seen as a continuation of the first book written to the same person and for similar reasons. Tell me, am I the only one that didn't walk in here knowing that? Well, we're tracking together. So in the second scroll, Theophilus is no longer addressed as 
most excellent. It's probable that this is due to his growth and intimacy in the faith and with Luke. The Gospel of Luke dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taking, taken up. In other words, the Gospel of Luke dealt with the actions of Jesus and acts is a continuation of the narrative from that point. This is one story separated into two scrolls because of the limitations of the length of the scroll. So saints, we never rely on a singular source for any of the concepts that we are suggesting to you. So we'd like to look at a second witness to the two-scroll concept that we quoted by Bruce Mesker earlier. So this slide says, second witness to the two-scroll concept. The author wrote his book on papyrus scrolls, the ordinary literary medium of the time. Since his narrative contained so much information about Jesus and the Christian community, he had to use two scrolls, each about 32 feet in length. He carefully designed his work so that scroll one covered the life of Jesus of Nazareth, his birth, ministry, arrest, trial, death, resurrection, and ascension. The second scroll narrated the experience of Jesus' followers as they took their initial steps toward formation of a Christian community. So now that we understand Luke Acts are one singular work, same author, same continuity of thought, just two scrolls because of the length of the account. There was no one note back then. Let's consider some of the common titles, understanding that Luke did not title his own work. Should we think of this work as the Acts of the Apostles? Should we? Oh, they're very shy tonight. Should we think of this work as the Acts of the Holy Spirit, Charismatic Church? Should we? That would have more traction. Or should we think of this work as something else altogether? Mm. The first work. The gospel is clearly defined by all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the actions of Jesus. The second work is a continuation of the story from that foundational starting point. The book of Acts might be best seen as a continuation of all that Jesus continued to do and teach through his body on earth after his ascension. When studying the book of Acts, we intend to present it as a call to act shun in this house. Well, if that's true, what's wrong with the title Acts of the Apostles? The obvious problem is that the 12 apostles are not prominently featured in the book of Acts. Peter and in some respects John are featured, but the book simply does not chronicle the actions of the 12 apostles. In fact, most of them are only mentioned once. On that note, Paul, Barnabas, and Silas are featured prominently, but none of them are one of the original 12 apostles. Furthermore, Philip, who was a deacon and an evangelist, is far more conspicuous than 11 of the 12. Perhaps the title Acts of the Apostles should then refer to all of the apostolic work in the 30-year period, But in our view, that still falls short of the ideal. And we're going to tell you why as we go. How about Acts of the Holy Spirit? That sounds better, right? Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) 
what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, and then we will consider the appropriateness of the title that you uh, would have chosen. We're going to start in John 14. John 14, verse 25. Jesus speaking, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So whose name does the Holy Spirit come in? Jesus! The Holy Spirit does not come in his own name. Whose words does the Holy Spirit remind you of? Jesus! The Holy Spirit does not speak on his own, but brings to remembrance the actions and teachings of Jesus. The superstar of Acts is Jesus. Jesus! The record in the book of Acts glorifies Jesus and magnifies Jesus. Acts is the sequel to Luke and has the same purpose, displaying all that Jesus began to do and teach. Of course, in the book of Acts, this was done through the body of Jesus on earth. So while you guys are thinking about that line of thought, consider this passage from John 16, starting in verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Who's speaking here again? Jesus. There you go. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, question. Does the Holy Spirit draw attention to himself? No. No. Absolutely not. The Spirit of holiness moves to exalt the Son. Perhaps Acts should be thought of as the actions of Jesus through his body after his ascension. Let's consider why that's important and some aspects that you've probably not given a great deal of thought. Do we have your attention yet? Yes. Yes. All right, so let's read Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. So when you're thinking about the Great Commission, at least two things should leap out to you. Jesus promised to participate with the apostles in the Great Commission. In fact, he promised that he would be with them in all nations and unto the end of the age. Did he in fact promise that? Yes. Yes. Does Jesus lie? No. No. We're going to see how we did it. Come on now. So that's the first one. Secondly, the prescription for baptism was into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. However, in the book of Acts, baptisms are only recorded as being done in the name of Jesus. These are hints towards the magnification of Jesus as the kingdom is being preached to the whole world through the actions of Jesus' body on earth. 
Jesus commissioned his followers to reach all nations, and Acts records the ongoing presence of Jesus with believers as they carry out his commands. Are you following us? Yeah. 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 His presence was with them through the infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're going to come back to that point in a minute, but consider a couple of the best ways to evaluate the book of Acts. So when we're considering the best ways to evaluate the book of Acts, one of them is to understand the book of Acts is to evaluate its beginning and its ending. The state of the body of Christ at the beginning of Acts, well, it's represented by 120 Jews in Jerusalem, specifically in an upper room. The state of the body of Christ at the ending of the book of Acts is represented by churches spread out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into Antioch, and all the way to Rome itself. In this light, it is obvious that not only is Jesus the superstar of the book, but he is also being shown to have an expanding kingship in every region of the world. You learning? The book of Acts actually contains seven progress reports. Not like the ones that you guys got in school where you got an F in conduct. These are reports regarding the state of the body's expansion and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I want to show you progress report number one on a slide. These are going to go in chronological order through the sequence of Acts. Acts 2, 45 through 47. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This first progress report is about the actions of Jesus Christ through his body as he is being magnified in the city of Jerusalem. Take a look at progress report number two, found in Acts 6-7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This progress report is about the actions of Jesus Christ through his body as he is magnified in Jerusalem and even in the priesthood in Jerusalem. That leads us right into progress report number three. This is found in Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this progress report is about the actions of Jesus Christ through his body as he is magnified in Judea, in Galilee, and even all the way into Samaria. Let's take progress report number four, Acts 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Oh, yeah. So this progress report is about the actions of Jesus Christ through his body as he is magnified in Jerusalem, 
even while the church is spreading in Antioch among a congregation of Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at progress report number five. Mm. This is Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This progress report is about the actions of Jesus Christ through his body as he is magnified in the expansion to the north and the west in the Gentile world. Now we'll move to progress report number six. And the whole point of titling them progress reports is what is being made is progress. Acts 19.20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This progress report is about the actions of Jesus Christ through his body as he is magnified in the expansion to the north and the west and the context is entire Gentile cities like Ephesus are being transformed, turned upside down. And last but not least, we have progress report number seven found in Acts 28, 30 through 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This progress report is about the actions of Jesus Christ through his body as he is magnified in the seat of power for the entire Gentile world, Rome itself. Come on, guys. Think about the magnification that happened through these progress reports in the period of about 30 years. Go back to the beginning state with us. We contrasted that beginning state with the ending state. And when we do that, it serves to illustrate the progress of the Great Commission in the magnification of the Son, Jesus Christ. The progress reports throughout the record, beginning in Jerusalem and ending all the way in Rome, complete a picture for us. And we've got a slide for you. Look at that. You see Italy all the way in the left, the the great length at which the gospel had reached all the way into Italy. Somebody said that's not bad for 30 years. That's not not bad for 30 years. Imagine what would happen if we put feet to our faith and did not view Facebook as our primary form of ministry. But I digress. (laughs) That's a great word. Guys, looking at this picture, it also helps you understand why Jesus said the following in John 16, verse 7, which I will read right now. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. How could, be, how could it be an advantage to have Jesus go away? Wait. Yeah, think about that yeah. for a minute. You're all sitting there, like, just staring like monkeys at a computer. And I, I get it. Can you imagine Jesus Christ looking you in the eye and saying, it'd be better for you if I went away? How would that strike you? How could that ever be an advantage to anyone? Well, Peyton's going to tell us. So you want to follow me on this one. Jesus, as a man, has locality. If he is in Jerusalem, 
then he is, by definition, not in Rome. True. That's true. That's true. As, a ma- uh, as a man, Jesus has exclusivity of presence, meaning that he is only in one place at a time. However, when Jesus is present in his body through the infilling of the Spirit, then he is present everywhere that the members of his body are. Thanks to you. See how it's an advantage? While you're thinking about that, we want to address something. You've been preconditioned to think of three distinct personages of the Godhead and the Trinity Doctrine both with its benefits and its limitations. That has played a large role in your lives through indirect or indirect influences, whether you know it or not. Considering the wording of Acts 16.7, we are not attempting to circumvent the popular views of the Trinity, but rather consider other equally important aspects of the biblical wording. You ready for Acts 16.7? And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, But the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus. There are a minority of translations that do not say the spirit of Jesus and only say spirit. But here's what you should know about that translation. We have a slide for you. Spirit or spirit of Jesus. Most early manuscripts have Spirit of Jesus. One early manuscript has Spirit of the Lord, and later witnesses have Spirit. While the reading Spirit provides the best explanation for the other variants, it has no early witnesses, no early manuscripts. The reading Spirit of Jesus, despite its early and consistent witness, is unique to this passage and occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. Interesting. The translation, the Spirit of Jesus, is supported by most early manuscripts. The only reason that some translators are uncomfortable with it is that the phrase is considered to be unique. We want you to know that while the exact phrase may be unique, the concept itself is thoroughly rooted in the entirety of the New Testament. Come on now. Would y'all like to see that? Yes. Good, because we got slide happy. Let's look at other New Testament witnesses. I just want to assuage the fears of our commentators here. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Do you see the way the two are equated? Synonymous terms? Look at Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Philippians 1, 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 1 Peter 1, 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Trinitarian concept of distinctness has its own merit, but this view often underemphasizes the other important truth that the Holy Spirit is both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of His Son. Simply put, It is absolutely correct and a right translation to say the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. 
no matter how uncomfortable that made people after the third century. <laughs> Through the infilling of the Spirit, two things can happen at once. Jesus can literally and physically be on the throne of God, and his presence is with the many members of his body on earth. This is how Jesus fulfilled the promise in the Great Commission. I am with you until the end of the age. Luke was the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the actions of Jesus. The book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his body on earth as he fulfilled his own great commission. Acts could be called the actions of Jesus through his body on earth as empowered by his spirit. Clearly, that title is too long. But the point should be clear for us. Jesus is the superstar of the book of Acts. Now, while you're thinking about that, let's make the point one more time so that no one misses it regarding the advantage of the spirit of Jesus being with his body until the ends of the earth and unto the end of the age. John 16 said the Holy Spirit would convict the world. Somebody say world. World. World of sin. That would not be true of Jesus ministering as a man. Even a glorified man. Even a glorified man that is the Son of God. Jesus would bring conviction to the local audience hearing him. However, through the Spirit of Jesus, or should I say the Holy Spirit, anywhere in the world that a member of his body is, conviction is being brought. Come on, you guys still breathing? That's good stuff in and of itself, isn't it? That is incredible. Now let's look at another meaningful way to evaluate the book of Acts. You just have to appreciate the way that we have fun picking on Trinitarians and oneness in the same sentence. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) We're going to look at another meaningful way to evaluate the book of Acts. We will again consider the opening and closing of the book of Acts. Take a look at our next slide. The kingdom of God in Acts 1, 2 through 3. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now listen to the end of the book of Acts. Acts 28, 30 through 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We have already shown you that the book of Acts displays the magnification of Jesus through the expansion of his body on earth. Here, it is clear that the promise of the kingdom governed by Messiah as a real and physical entity on earth is continued from Luke through the book of Acts. Acts begins and ends in a proclamation about the kingdom of God. This central message also permeates the entire gospel of Luke. 
Look at these numbers and statistics from the BKC on our next slide together. The prophetic expression, kingdom of God, occurs in Luke 32 times. And in Acts, six times. Besides the allusions to God's kingdom in chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 20, verse 25. And then we have some references there. In addition, there are many references to eschatology and other terminology and by inference. And you can see that long line of reference passages. So it is obvious that the Gospel of Luke emphasizes the establishment of the kingdom. It is equally obvious that Acts emphasizes the expansion of the kingdom. So someone say establishment. Establishment. That's Luke. And someone else say expansion. Expansion. That's Acts. It is easy to make the mistake of reading a Hellenistic view of the kingdom of God back into the text. Greeks tended to view this concept as ethereal, off-world, even celestial. That influence has shaped most Christians' view of the kingdom of God. And it is flawed, if not entirely unscriptural. Any understanding that you hold of the kingdom of God, listen church, must begin with the understanding that that was present in the Bible and held by the Jewish roots that are our foundation to this day. Look, we just want to draw your attention to this so you don't get 75% away from this point through our teaching. And every time you hear the kingdom of God, you're like, oh, how sweet heaven. No, that's not what it says. It's not what the early church believed. And it is not what the Bible presents. And you're going to have to work to make this adjustment because you've heard this preached wrong for 2,000 years. And all of us have treated the goal of the faith as to go to heaven. That has never been the goal of the Christian faith. That is not taught in the Bible. We can concede that if you die, you go to heaven. But the Bible is not about that concept. In fact... That is a Greek concept about going to Elysium when you die. If you ever saw the movie Gladiator, that's what they hoped for, is that they would wake up in Elysium, some other world. That is not what the Bible teaches, and it never has. And we're going to walk through what the kingdom of God actually is. So we'd like to remind you of the source material for these concepts beginning in the book of Daniel. And then illustrate the establishment and expansion of the kingdom in the books of Luke and Acts. Wow. Okay. Ironically, we will begin with a revelation given to a Gentile that only Jews were able to interpret. Wow. The king is Nebuchadnezzar, and in his day, Babylon ruled the known world. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and wanted to know what they meant. However, he did not trust his magicians to tell him. In a stroke of genius, Nebuchadnezzar decided not to tell the enchanter this dream, but instead to ask them to both tell him the dream and the interpretation. Do you remember that story? Yes. The magicians raised two very important questions in an attempt to save their own lives. And you may remember, uh, remember this from our studies from Daniel 2. We have a slide for you with those two key questions. The first one was, is there a people on earth... That can hear from God. Yes. And the second one is, is there a people on earth that God lives among? Yes. Well, thankfully, the answer to both those questions is yes. yes. 
there is. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were faithful Jews who could both hear from God and were men that God lives among. They sought the God of Israel for answers in the great mystery of the eschatological future, and Adonai answered them. This is Daniel's recorded prayer of thanks as the revelation came to him and his group of companions in Daniel chapter 2, verse 23. To you, O God my, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we ask of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Thanks to the troubling dreams of Nebuchadnezzar were in fact a message to him from the God of Israel concerning the kingdom of God and the Gentile kingdoms of the world. Although the message was given to the Gentile king, only faithful Jews were able to interpret it. Come on. Here are portions of the interaction between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. You want to hear the interpretations? Yes. Daniel 2.27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Now, before we get into the details of the dream, note that there was a singular mystery that this discussion between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar revolved around, namely the substance and meaning of his dream. However, Daniel's testimony is that his God reveals mysteries in the plural. Come on. Yeah. This is an important facet when approaching the subject of the kingdom of God. Adonai has left mysteries in place, but reveals them to the faithful. As you approach the subject of the kingdom of God, understand many facets that were mysteries have been revealed, but they were nevertheless mysteries at one time. As we go through the book of Acts together, you will encounter how Adonai again revealed one of those mysteries to faithful Jews regarding the inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom of God on earth. The centerpiece of the book of Acts is the 15th chapter, and it deals heavily with the mysterious inclusion of Gentiles into a kingdom promise to the Jewish people. Now we're going to keep going in our discussion between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel with some summary. So Daniel recounted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we summarized it on this slide from our Daniel studies. You guys remember the statue from Daniel 2? In Daniel 2, we see a first kingdom, which is the head of gold. Then a second kingdom, which is the chest and arms of silver. The third kingdom, which is the belly and thighs of bronze. And lastly, the fourth kingdom, which is the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Now, what we taught and what we will remember is that those materials, as starting from the top down, decreased in value. And while they decreased in value, they increased in strength. You see, as Daniel relayed Nebuchadnezzar's dream and gave its interpretation, 
He included a very, very important detail. Yeah. And it's found in Daniel 2, verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The whole what? Earth. The whole what? (laughs) The empires that would rule Babylon and the majority of the biblical world would increase in strength while they decreased in value over time. In the midst of this process, a stone was cut out of a mountain and then grew to become a great mountain that filled the whole earth. The stone that becomes a mountain represents both Israel and the Messiah of Israel. This becomes abundantly clear when you go to Daniel 2 and you read verses like 44 and 45 of the same chapter. Let's do that. Daniel 2, 44 through 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Oh, wait, wait. When we hear the phrase, kingdom of God, do you think it's possible that that phrase comes from the God of heaven will set up a kingdom? Yeah. Yes. And where were those kingdoms? Oh, okay. So the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation sure. Clearly, neither, neither Israel nor Israel's Messiah were the work of humans, human hands. The nation and the Messiah both started as something that seemed small and insignificant in comparison with the magnificent Gentile empires. However, Israel and the Messiah would expand to fill the earth and ultimately triumph over the Gentile empires. Yeah. Daniel 2 refers to the stone as Messiah and mountain and the mountain as the kingdom of God. Now there's two very important aspects that have to be wrestled with in this passage. The first one, the kingdom is set up in the days of those kings, meaning during the four Gentile empires. Second, the time of the kingdom of God's triumph is during the fourth empire. Which empire? Fourth. Fourth. And it is only after the demise of the fourth empire that the kingdom of God is fully and observably victorious over its predecessors. Mm. So grab hold of those two things as we move forward with this. The kingdom that God was setting up started to be set up in the midst of Gentile empires on the earth. But the kingdom that started as a stone would become a mountain and suddenly and climactically overcome the fourth Gentile empire on this planet. So the kingdom is set up and is small and inconspicuous. 
But at some point, it becomes a mountain that overthrows the other kingdoms of the world. Come on. You guys grasp those two concepts? Let's talk about it on a more personal level. This is why any serious Bible student has to wrestle with two important truths regarding the kingdom of God. The first truth is that the kingdom is already present, and we are presently living in it. Amen! It has been set up in the time of the Gentile empires. The second truth is that the kingdom is not yet established, and it's observable, triumphant, and undeniable form as it will be following the demise of the fourth Gentile empire. We live in both realities, both truths. This is also why Jesus can say that the kingdom of God is at hand, and yet the apostles can ask in Acts chapter 1, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Various branches of theology monopolize one facet of the truth over the other. But it is important to grasp the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The Bible presents the kingdom as here and now, having been set up in the times of the Gentile empires. And also still coming in the fullest form after the demise of the fourth Gentile empire. All students should be warned of exclusionary truth, meaning that you accept the kingdom is here, but exclude the truth that the kingdom is yet to be fully realized. Or that you accept that the kingdom will be a reality on the earth, while excluding the truth that the kingdom is also present on the earth now in our midst. No, go ahead. Consider a very small sampling from Luke's gospel with us on this subject. We titled this slide here and not yet here. You have to love paradoxes in the Bible. You find life by losing it. (laughs) (laughs) One and one and one is not three, it's one. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, Luke 10, 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, I got it. Except Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Hmm. Okay, Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. This is a small sampling of the ways that the kingdom is treated in the Bible. Jewish perceptions of the kingdom of God as displayed in the scriptural record present the kingdom of God on earth and entrusted to the Jewish people, but also not yet fully realized because of Israel's failures as well as Gentile oppression. One of the greatest anticipatory factors of the Messiah was that he would bring about the restoration or the full realization of the kingdom of God on earth. Look, we're going to now go back to Luke and see how he introduces these concepts in scroll number one. You guys picking up with us? They anticipated that the Messiah would bring about the restoration and the full realization of the kingdom of God on earth. Let's see how they anticipated that in Luke 131 through 33. Is Luke 1 at the end of the book? No. No. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Thank you, ESV. <laughs> and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Yeah. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, Luke is clearly announcing that Jesus is the stone that will become the mountain. More specifically, Luke declares that Jesus will possess David's throne on earth. And his kingdom will have no end on earth. This is exactly the description of the kingdom of God that has no end in the book of Daniel. Luke presents Messiah as the restorer of God's kingdom entrusted to Israel. Luke continues this thought in verse 67 of the first chapter. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So Luke shows the father of John the baptizer prophesying in agreement with all the prophets that came before him. The prophecy is that Israel will be redeemed through the house of David. Again, the father of the forerunner for Jesus is announcing the salvation of Israel and the coming kingdom of God through Israel's Messiah. The concept of the kingdom of God and Israel cannot be separated from each other. And the anticipation was for a physical and tangible kingdom of God on earth given to the people right there. Yeah. Why do we keep saying that? Because nobody reading Daniel would go, oh, there's an earthly kingdom called the Babylonians. There's an earthly kingdom called the Medo-Persians. And there's an earthly kingdom called the Greeks. And there's a fourth kingdom that we don't know what it would be called, but it's going to try to wipe out everything. And then God's going to set up a kingdom that will have no ending, but clearly that's somewhere else. Okay. Nobody would ever think that. Okay. That was Greeks that came into the church. That's what we mean by a Hellenistic idea. As you start to unwrench yourself from that, you'll start to understand what Acts is actually teaching. Let's go to Luke 2. Luke 2, 25-32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. How would you like that to be your testimony? Put that on the gravestone, man. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Come on. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Amen. Stone in the mountain. He can see it in Jesus. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. What? A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Praise God. And for glory to your people, Israel. Glory. Luke records Simeon's anticipation of the consolation of Israel. 
This would only come when the four Gentile empires were replaced by the kingdom of God on earth, which was already in their midst, but not yet fully realized. Interestingly, Simeon also hints at Israel being a light for revelation to who? The Gentiles. One of the great mysteries that you will see revealed in the book of Acts is very much like Daniel and his companions. It has been a mystery for ages that the Gentiles would be able to participate in the kingdom of God. But in Acts 10 through 15, Adonai, like in Daniel, revealed to faithful Jews an aspect of the kingdom previously unknown. Just like in Daniel, this involved a Gentile revelation and a Jewish interpretation. Now, however, the twofold principle that the kingdom is now present but not fully realized as it will be, continued to confound the earliest Jewish leaders in the body of Christ. They knew that the kingdom of God was present on earth and entrusted to them. But they also knew that the kingdom of God was not fully realized and attributed that, uh, attributed that to Israel's error and Gentile oppression. It was anticipated that the Jewish Messiah would solve both of these problems. So what was what Pastor Peyton just painted, where they did not fully understand these two truths and how they would work together. But they anticipated that Messiah would bring resolution, that he would usher in oh, the kingdom of God now, but its fullest form was their expectation. I'm going to read to you this question from Acts 1-6 again. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. Remember, these are his disciples asking the man whom they've been following, who they call Messiah, who they're longing for the restoration of all things. The timing of the physical establishment of the kingdom of God is something that the book of Daniel gives many details concerning. All faithful believers were and still should be longing for this Singular event. Longing for this event that would cure Israel's error and eliminate all Gentile oppression. Once again, let us return to the source material of Daniel to understand the context of the book of Acts. We titled this slide, Anticipation and Timing. In Daniel 7, starting in verse 7, but then moving to verses 13 through 14, it says, After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So again, the seventh chapter of Daniel places the kingdom of God's time of triumph during the fourth beastly Gentile empire. Even though the kingdom was in the midst of the empires, the final and climactic triumph over the fourth beastly empire 
would be what brought about the kingdom of God in an undeniable and tangible reality. Moreover, Daniel 7 features the victorious Messiah coming on the clouds of heaven to bring about the physical establishment of the kingdom that will never be destroyed and has freed itself of all Gentile oppressors. So with that in mind, can you imagine what kinds of questions this raised among the earliest followers of Jesus? Let's remind you of how the book of Acts opens. Acts 1, 9 through 11. And picture these Jews knowing the book of Daniel and what they're about to see. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. (laughs) I bet they were. Perhaps asking, is this it? When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? (laughs) This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The questions and acts about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel are totally understandable in this setting. The apostles were waiting for the overthrow of beastly Gentile empires and the physical establishment of the kingdom of God. They knew that this would be done by one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. But there's a problem! The problem is, they just saw him on a cloud, but headed the wrong direction. (laughs) Of course, they were assured of his return on the clouds of heaven. But they did not yet understand all that had to happen between his ascension and his return. The book of Acts displays the revelation of the mystery that even Gentiles would be included in the kingdom of heaven that God promised to Israel on earth. We will encounter that in the coming weeks. To understand this profound mystery, you will first have to understand what the Jewish people knew in advance of the mystery being revealed. So you got to roll back the clock a little bit yeah. and put yourselves in their shoes. Right. You have to limit yourself to know what they know. In other words, you've not encountered the chapters of the book of Acts yet. We've got to watch the prequel first. So with that perspective, let's go back to what they did have. Let's travel to Daniel 7 again together. We've got a slide for you. This slide is entitled, Israel Possesses the Kingdom. This is Daniel 7, verses 21 and 22. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Guys, from this we know that these faithful Jews knew that Adonai would set up a kingdom in the time of Gentile empires. These faithful Jews also knew that Adonai would completely overthrow the fourth beastly Gentile empire and physically, we're talking physically, establish the kingdom on the earth. Daniel 7 promises that the kingdom to be set up would be possessed by the saints. In the midst of Jewish people being oppressed by Gentile empires, it was a complete mystery 
that Gentiles might become saints who possess the kingdom alongside of the nation of Israel. Can you feel that for a minute? After all, guys, Daniel 2 specifically says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people, meaning a a people outside of God's nation Israel. The promise of the kingdom of God on earth is very first and foremost for Israel. This promise cannot be left to another people. The Bible declares it. But the mystery is that another people can possess the kingdom alongside God's people. That's good. In our time, the body of Messiah... God, I'm happy. They're, they're understanding. They like it. <laughs> We're Gentiles. We get to be included. In our time, the body of Messiah is dominated by Gentile inclusion. It is hard for many believers to understand that the kingdom was promised to Israel throughout the biblical narrative. However, you have to remember that Gentile inclusion was a mystery revealed to the experience of Gentiles like Cornelius and interpreted by faithful Jews like Peter and Paul. Praise God. Hey, do you see the symmetry between Daniel and his companions, Nebuchadnezzar and Peter and Paul, with a Gentile named Cornelius? As we encounter the book of Acts, you will have to engage with the experience of the first century audience to fully appreciate the extent of the miracles being portrayed. Now, the book of Acts will chronicle the expansion of the kingdom into nearly every known nation prior to the overthrow of the fourth beastly Gentile empire. Even more amazing is that it will document the inclusion of Gentiles, shout out, from every nation into the body of Jewish Messiah. Wow. So remember, the kingdom is now, but is also still future. Consider what Israel was waiting for from a timing perspective. We're going to lightly reflect on our Daniel studies. You will want to refresh your personal familiarity with those teachings as we continue in the book of Acts. This will help you as you interpret the events recorded in the book. Uh, As Judah goes through this slide, there's a lot of complicated information. That is why there are so many errant branches of theology. You would do well to slap yourself around, encourage yourself to do whatever, to pay attention and not get lost in the numbers. We are going to help you with this, and you have a lifetime to study it. But this is seriously important. And we did spend all of those weeks with two-hour session after two-hour session on the book of Daniel to prepare you for this. So our slide is entitled, Gabriel's Message to Daniel. Just to make sure everybody's awake. Was Daniel a Gentile? No! So Gabriel's message to a faithful Jew named Daniel. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews! And your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. 
after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. You will confirm a covenant. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So, on this slide, for your benefit, we highlighted in three different colors what we've come to call, for simplicity's sake, heptatic periods. The enigmatic message given by Gabriel contains three heptatic periods, totaling 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. When those 70 weeks of years were completed, it was going to accomplish seven things for Daniel's people. Let's look at the accomplishment of that because this is what the kingdom of God looks like in its full form. It will finish transgression, or Hebrew, pesha, willful rebellion. Can you imagine a kingdom on earth that has no more willful rebellion? Hallelujah. Number two, it will end sin. That's kata. Wrong or sinful conduct. Yeah, I can't even imagine that, except that the Bible describes it. Number three, it will atone for wickedness. That's a vaughn, all liability or guilt. It will bring in everlasting righteousness, number four. It will seal up vision, number uh, for five. Number six, it will seal up prophecy. Number seven, it will anoint the most holy. And scholars debate about whether that's a holy temple or a holy people. And the answer is yes. (laughs) These things were to be accomplished for Daniel's people, Ah, the Jewish nation. These things were to be accomplished for Daniel's holy city, Jerusalem. These things are set within the context of a kingdom that is already present, but that is not fully realized until there is a triumph by the Son of Man over the fourth beastly Gentile empire. The anticipation and the timing of these events was just as hotly debated in the first century as it is in our time. Probably more so, because we've gotten kind of lazy and just want to get the hell out of here and go to heaven. But it's not biblical. Heaven is actually coming this way. That's called the millennial reign. This next slide will summarize our understanding of the meaning of the angelic message to help you understand the backdrop to the book of Acts from a biblical and cultural perspective. Now, again, you're going to want to revisit the more in-depth study that we did on this subject in your own time. For many of you, you will remember this slide. These are the heptatic periods as defined by Daniel 9. Now, Heptad A and B were fulfilled in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the presentation of Jesus as the Messiah. By the way, that's the end of the book of Acts, or book of Luke, right there. Heptad B came to a close in the crucifixion of Jesus, the end of Luke. What no one knew in the first century, which is that time gap right there, what no one knew in the first century and in the book of Acts, and perhaps even now, 
is when the third heptatic period, yeah. labeled C, would begin. Yeah. However, the scripture is replete with indicators that men have been looking for in every generation. Come on now. They are the items that indicate the commencement of the final week, the final heptatic uh, period of this age, heptad C. Ooh, guys, we got another slide for you, and we want to focus in, hone in on some of those indicators that are going to happen in the final seven years of heptad C. Now, he, here in this slide, is speaking about the final Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant. In the middle of that covenant that he confirms, we're talking about 42 months later, or you can see 1,260 days later, or in other parts of the word it says 3.5 years later, he will break that covenant. He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. He will set up an abomination that causes desolation. And the end decreed will be poured out on him. And all of those things will be demonstrated in Heptat C, the final seven years. So the last seven year period has been the subject of incredible debate in every century. Yeah. yeah. However, look at this slide again and consider the blue circle. Oh. The blue circle! Yes! Oh. Inside that blue circle it says time gap yes. between Heptad B and Heptad C. The time gap represented on our slide provided the opportunity and obligation to fulfill the Great Commission. Oh, come, come on. on. That's good. The Great That's Commission good. that would be yeah. present, present every nation in the world with the opportunity to receive the kingdom of God alongside Israel. Amen. Amen. So let us remind you of how Matthew recorded Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Hey, did you catch what kind of gospel it was? Gospel of the kingdom. Yeah, let's just read it again. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In that light, you can, you can understand why the apostles were asking about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel in the same breath that they, were, they are being told that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Now the book of Acts will display how seriously they took the call to be witnesses to every nation yeah. and unto the ends of the earth. The book of Acts opens and closes with discussion about the establishment of the kingdom of God, which is on earth. Yeah. Right. The book of Acts magnifies Jesus. Who does it magnify? Jesus! And shows the expansion of his kingship into every nation. This is a precursor to the final week of history, where he will return on the clouds of heaven and destroy the final manifestation of the Gentile beastly power. Are you starting to be unwrenched from the idea that it's all about going to heaven? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> starting to understand the context of the book of Acts? Yeah. It begins and ends with a discussion about the kingdom of God, which every reader would understand to be on the earth. 
Now, if you're having a little hissy over that and it really upsets your many years of, I don't know, track ministry or whatever else, let's get over it together. If you die this moment to be absent from this body, we'll put you present in the kingdom of God, which is in heaven. But that whole kingdom is coming here, and you've been praying it since you were in little Catholic school. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks, as we reflect on a few other important aspects before moving on, this ought to give you an idea of the motivation for the Great Commission. They were told that the end will come, the kingdom will be established when... All nations have heard. You saw the progress that they made, and now you're beginning to understand why. And that kingdom had to be in the midst of the Gentile empires. Not not just in Israel, and those Gentile empires are ruling Israel, but in the midst of the empires. So the time gap allows for that. So we're trying not to run over on our time and our overview before we've taught our first chapter. But we want to give you a brief reflection on some of the events of Daniel 2 in a summative form. So the stone was present in the midst of the other empires, but it became a mountain suddenly, not gradually. Christianity did not suddenly fill the whole earth at Christ's first advent, but instead is being spread gradually to all nations. When the kingdom comes in the full, undeniable, intangible form on the earth, it will suddenly and dramatically overthrow all Gentile power. Amen. The kingdom will be a mountain or a nation that rules the entire world under Messiah. Through Christ, though Christ came in the days of the Roman Empire, he did not destroy it. And we do not believe that Rome is the fourth empire that did not even rule Babylon And we have discussed that many times, but you can review the Daniel studies. During Christ's time on earth, the Roman Empire did not have ten kings at once. Yet Nebuchadnezzar's statue suggests that when Christ comes to establish his kingdom in the final form, ten rulers will be in existence and will be destroyed by Messiah. (laughs) Christ is now the chief cornerstone to the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that. And he's a stone that causes unbelievers to stumble, as 1 Peter 2.8 says. But he is not yet a smashing stone, as he will be when he comes again, as Daniel 2 portrays, to fully establish the kingdom on earth that displaces every other Gentile power. Now the stone that is Messiah will crush and end all the kingdoms of the world. But the church has not and will not conquer the world's kingdoms and governments in a physical sense. However, the Israel of God will conquer the kingdoms of the world in a very physical sense. The Israel that God causes to triumph will be an earthly kingdom that Messiah is king of. And the millennial reign describes these events. The book of Acts records how Gentiles came to be included in the kingdom promised to Israel. Now, as much as we want to reteach the entire book of Daniel, this is an overview of Acts, and it's not appropriate. We're trying to just remind you of enough information so that you don't default to the old, worn-out, ridiculous paradigms that you were taught in Sunday school. They weren't right when they were taught to you. They weren't right when you began to reteach them. And we just have to unwrench ourselves from that prideful position. We're going to take a few more minutes to remind you of the historical stage that had been set prior to the first century. So this is going to look like a very complicated slide. 
You've seen it many times before. I'm only doing this so that you have an understanding of history and geography as we come into the book of Acts, and I promise it'll be enlightening. So while this slide is on the screen, the book of Daniel identifies by name the Babylonian Empire as the first Gentile beastly empire out of four that would precede the full establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. The book of Daniel likewise identifies by name the Medo-Persian Empire as the second Gentile beastly empire out of four that would precede the full establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. The book of Daniel identifies the Greek Empire by name as the third Gentile beastly empire out of four that would precede the full establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Y'all tracking so far? Following the Greek Empire, the book of Daniel describes a time of transition with four smaller regional kingdoms that are not empires. There's a difference in the wording. From one of the smaller regional kingdoms, it is said that a horn or a leader would arise to usher in the fourth and final Gentile beastly empire that was prophesied. It's important to remember, even though some Bibles write in the pericope a name, the book of Daniel and the entire Bible never name the fourth Gentile empire. So what we're left with is of four, four smaller transitional regional kingdoms that precede the fourth Gentile beastly empire, there would be one who is more predominant, who likely ruled Babylon and Israel, just like Babylon did, just like Medo-Persia did, just like the Greeks did, and that one is, in history, the Seleucid Empire. So here is what the smaller regional and transitional kingdom of the Seleucids looked like. This is important because it precedes the fourth larger beastly empire that would rule both Babylon and Israel prior to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. That is the Seleucid kingdom. That is also Turkey. That is also Israel, Syria, Lebanon today. It is the Middle East. Interestingly enough, it's not Europe. It's not even East Europe, much less a Western European power. This is the area that the Bible focuses on, and it's what the readers would have understood. So we've already laid out the case for why we do not see Rome as fulfilling the description of the fourth Gentile beastly empire. In fact, we spent hours detailing the ways that we think Rome falls short of the biblical description. Since this is a study on the book of Acts, we will not do that again. However, whether some version of a revived Rome or an Islamic caliphate, the book of Acts is taking place in the time of transition and in the time gap before the final heptad that is the last seven years of Gentile reign on earth. It will be interesting to note the effects of Pentecost on the area that the small horn is said to rise from, namely the Seleucid kingdom. If you got lost in all that, pay attention to this slide. In the coming weeks, 
you will come to see that Pentecost was a reversing of the Tower of Babel. It was the declaration of war on the celestial powers that hold the 70 nations captive. Every missionary effort in the book of Acts is a declaration that Israel's king will be the king over all kingdoms and the kingdom of God will supplant every other dominion and authority on earth. We certainly have an exciting study ahead of us. Does that interest you? Many of the earliest church plants in Jerusalem, Syria, Egypt, Turkey, and on to Rome, and etc., were still there and thriving until the last few decades in our time. The apostles' work stood the test for two millennia. And in our time, Islam, like the fourth beast, is trying to erase it. We see the book of Acts as our call to act shun to complete the progress towards Revelation 7's setting, which is all 12 tribes of Israel before the throne of God and of the Lamb, plus this statement. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Guys, we cannot wait to get into this study with you together. Now, we're going to make a transition at this point. And we've got, you know, roughly about 30, 35 minutes. We're going to use the balance of our time in this overview to acquaint ourselves with a few other concepts that are really going to help us engage with the Jewish foundational elements to the book of Acts. All right, before this next statement, Pastor Regina, have your thoughts begun to have to adjust a little bit about the kingdom of God? Yes. Are y'all feeling good and ready to be new wineskins that can absorb new things? Yes. All right, well, brace yourselves. All right, get ready for this next statement here. The early believing community was not a new religion. What? The early believing community was not a new religion. The root of all that the world would come to know as Christianity is most definitely Jewish. Amen. They are the people group that the kingdom of God is promised to. And it is only alongside them that Gentiles are included as co-heirs. So, we have for you at this point seven statements. How many? Seven. Seven statements about how the early believing community saw themselves and how they were described as well. Have you ever noticed people get our church name wrong? Yes. Yeah. We're called One Life Change. We're called Life Changing. We're, we're called all kind of, not even the other pastors in the One Association get this right. <laughs> but we do have a sign. And we do refer to ourselves. The book of Acts records how these believers referred to themselves and how people encountering them in the local community also referred to them. Don't you want to know about that? Yes. Yes. Let's take our first one. We have that slide. The way. The way number one. This is Acts 9, verse 2. And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way, men or women, 
he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. If you're thinking the way to go to heaven, you did not listen to the previous hour and a half. (laughs) The believing community described in the book of Acts from beginning to end is described as belonging to the Way. way. This reference is in Jerusalem and is describing the community of believers from Jerusalem all the way to Damascus. You will see this is how they describe themselves and is the term that is most often used to describe, uh, describe them by others. So number two comes from Acts 16, verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who were proclaimed to you the way of salvation. Now this reference would be one that is easily missed until you place it within the larger volume of references within the book of Acts. However, you should notice that even a demoniac in this passage, a woman possessed with evil spirits, is describing the proclamation of the earliest believers as an invitation to the way of salvation. Let's look at the third one. Acts 18.25 He had been instructed... In the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. When Luke describes Apollos, he is said to have been instructed in the way of the Lord. Priscilla and Aquila are said to have explained to him the way more accurately. Again, the movement is not being described as Christianity or a new religion, but is referred to as the way. If this is not clear to you yet, I understand, which is why we included more references that are going to remove all ambiguity. All right, fourth reference to the way in Acts 19, 8 through 9. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. What? But when some become, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. When Paul was in Ephesus, he was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The believing community was described, even by detractors, as the way. Notice that even the translators are capitalizing the name of the community, as they did in chapter 9, back in Jerusalem. The way is capitalized. Because this term is being used as a title A proper noun for the believing community all the way from Jerusalem to Damascus and even now in Ephesus. That brings us to the way number five. Also found in Acts 19 verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So this reference to the way is also in Ephesus and is spoken by the chief antagonist, Demetrius the silversmith. Mm. He describes Paul's activities and the resulting believing community 
that is referred to as the way as being spread out in almost all of Asia by this time. The early believing community was referred to as the way the majority of the time in every location that they went. Let's take the way number six. Acts 24, 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when uh, Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Even the Rome, Roman procurator, Felix, is described as having a rather accurate knowledge of the believing community called the way. This reference is just before Paul appeals to Caesar. This brings us to our seventh slide, which is the best of all seven. Come on now. Yeah. This is Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way. You see how the W is capitalized again? Oh, yeah. Which they call a set. Uh oh. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. The seventh and final slide on the way is the point of the matter. No one in the early believing community saw themselves as having departed from the biblical faith of Judaism. The community understood that the way was their rightful identifier because this was the way that Adonai had always promised to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. Wow. Imagine how indicting the name of the community was to the stagnant, unbelieving yeah. Jewish leaders. The way? The group of Jesus' followers were said to be the way that would bring about God's kingdom, meaning that the present stagnant Jewish leaders were not the way. The joint volume of Luke-Acts presents Jesus as the Messiah and the king of the kingdom that was promised through Daniel. It further displays him as the way that the kingdom of God will come about through the actions of his body on the earth. The community was called the way, and the inference is to bring about the kingdom of God. Are you guys learning something? Yes. Well, at this point... I can see in your eyes, someone has remembered that John records Jesus as saying something. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And when someone makes this connection, I always love it. I mean, it is a good one. The thought is usually that the early followers only identified themselves as belonging to the way because Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, the community is not called followers of the way, the truth, and the life. The community is called the way. Now, Jesus' statement may be one of the reasons but it certainly falls short of the bigger picture we want you to get. Long before Jesus said this statement, Luke records John the baptizer's ministry in these words. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Okay, before you finish that, if the early community is only named the way because Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life, then what part of Jesus was crooked and John the Baptist needed to straighten it out? <laughs> it's absurd, okay? Keep listening and you'll get a revelation. And it's one that's important to your understanding of the book of Acts. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see, the bigger picture is that the law, prophets, and writings declare the way that Adonai would bring about the final kingdom on earth promised to Israel. However, the present leaders of Israel had made the way crooked. And repentance was needed to bring about the kingdom of God on earth as promised to Israel. The early believing community was declaring that they were in the way as their righteous forefathers like Abraham or David had been. In other words, the followers of Jesus had not departed from the promises of the kingdom and the biblical faith of the patriarchs, the unbelieving and stagnant leaders in Jerusalem are the ones that departed from the way. The Gospel of Matthew makes this point succinctly. Matthew 21, 43 is a passage you're going to want to hone into. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. As this statement was made specifically to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, where most present-day believers get confused is in thinking that the statement refers to taking the kingdom from Israel as a nation, as a whole. You guys already know that that idea is patently false and it's also unbiblical. The custodians of the way to the kingdom were being changed from present Jewish leadership to new Jewish leadership, as in the Jewish apostles. Which is why the first chapter of Acts has us making sure that there are 12 men who will sit on 12 thrones in Israel. 12 Jewish men. So this understanding is important to the core of many issues that plague our time. For instance... If the earliest believers did not see themselves as departing from Judaism to establish a new religion, then no Jew today should have to depart from true Judaism. Amen. That's a good word. What a Jew would be doing today is returning to biblical Judaism as exemplified in Messiah Jesus and the Twelve Apostles. Come on. The only word. sense in which it is really That's good. So good. <laughs> it's so good. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. The only sense in which Judaism is a different religion is that is in that many within it departed from the actual faith and practices of the righteous patriarchs that defined what Judaism should be. On the other hand, 
No Gentile should think of the way as a new religion that Israel is no longer the focus of. Instead, they should see themselves as being privileged to join in the holy roots of a Jewish Messiah and Jewish apostles that define true Judaism. Amen. Gentiles are even allowed to do this without ethnically becoming Jews. Hallelujah. So at this point, we want to take a sampling because there are literally hundreds of passages that describe Israel's relationship to Adonai and the promise of the kingdom. This slide is entitled, Not Just Believing, But Walking. This helps give you an idea of how they viewed their relationship with Adonai. Genesis 5.22. Enoch was a righteous man who was said to have walked with God. Genesis 48, verse 15. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were described as having walked with God. Leviticus 26.12. Adonai promised to walk among Israel. Deuteronomy 5.33. All Israel is commanded to walk in the way. Acts 1, 1 through 3. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to believe. No. All that Jesus began to do and teach. This was in reference to him speaking about the kingdom of God. The faithful within the biblical religion, faithful Jews, were promised that they would possess the kingdom. They did more than adhere to principles intellectually. They demonstrated actions that displayed their trust in Adonai and his promises. In the Bible, these actions are described as walking with God or walking in the commands of God. The book of Luke displays Jesus doing or walking perfectly in those commands. In fact, he is the perfect example of Adonai's will. The book of Luke shows him to be the only way to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. The book of Acts displays his body continuing in the way. Moreover, that the way was expanding to include faithful men from other nations. Moreover, that the proclamation of the way that Adonai would bring about the kingdom of God was expanding to the very edges of the known world. So now that your understanding of the kingdom of God has changed and the nature of the early believing community has changed, perhaps the best method to assist you in understanding the way is to read an excerpt from Isaiah 35. It will make the point better than we have now that you can see what it says. Are you ready? Slides called Walking. The Way, and Isaiah 35. We're helping you connect concepts. Starting in verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. Picking up in 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Picking up in verse 8, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Picking up in 10. 
and the ransomed of the Lord will return, they will enter Zion with singing. Now, you're an educated people. Do you perceive the double-edged sword in the title, The Way? If you are in The Way, then you are seeing blind eyes open, deaf ears unstopped, and holiness. If you're in The Way, then you are the ransomed of the Lord and will enter Zion on earth singing. However, if you are not in The Way, then you are a wicked fool. What kind of discussions do you think that caused in the first century? (laughs) While you're pondering that subject, let us offer you another, even more powerful slide. The way and the teacher. Isaiah 30, 20 through 21. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself. But your eyes will behold your teacher. Good teacher. Your eyes will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left. So not only did Adonai promise that the way would be made obvious, but he also promised the teacher would appear before their eyes. If these things do not begin to cause references to the way of the Lord to explode in your mind, then you are not getting the concept yet. We could teach for hours from the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, beginning at Eden and moving all the way through Revelation on this subject. However, time will not permit us to do that. Let's just say that the kingdom of God has always been promised to be a real and physical kingdom on the earth. Israel is always presented as the custodian of that kingdom, and that much of the Bible is dedicated to walking in the way, as in the only way that God will bring it about for Israel and those who inherit the kingdom alongside that people. The way is not a general description of the mannerisms of the believers. The way is not a metaphor For just the process to get to heaven. The way is not just an association with Jesus being called the way, the truth, and the life. The way is a title for the walk of obedience that brings about the physical establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. With Messiah as the king of Israel and grafted in nations as co-heirs and co-rulers. That is what the Bible says about the way. Come on, are you guys learning anything today? Now clearly the book of Acts is going to be an amazing study together. So as we move on, let's consider some of the most beautiful symmetry as well as other associations that the original audience may have made. We've got a slide for you here. Look at this intentional symmetry between Jews and Gentiles. This is going to be very interesting for you. On the left-hand side, we have Peter, otherwise known as the Apostle to Jews. What's the first thing that we have here in Acts 3, 1 through 11? Oh, he healed a man lame from birth. Now let's check out the right side of the screen. We have Paul, known as the Apostle to Gentiles. 
And the first thing that we have over there is Acts 14, 8 through 18. He healed a man lame from birth. Let's check out the next one. Peter, in Acts 5, 15 through 16, his shadow healed people. Now Paul, in chapter 19, 11 through 12, pieces of cloth that he sent healed people. Peter, in chapter 5, verse 17, success caused Jewish jealousy. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, in chapter 13, verse 45, his success called Jew, caused Jewish jealousy. Are you guys seeing the similarities here? Yeah. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 24, Peter is dealing with Simon, a sorcerer. Paul, in chapter 13, verses 6 through 14, dealt with Bar-Jesus, a sorcerer. And finally, Peter, in chapter 9, raised Dorcas to life. And Paul, in chapter 20, raised Eutychus to life. Guys, the point we are making is that Luke seems to have been inspired to include a symmetry of miraculous workings and ministry among both Jews and Gentiles in the same book. The point may have been to show genuine unity and validity to both kinds of believers that represent the way. Another association that the original audience may have made are similarities between Luke as a compiling author and Ezra as a compiling author. What? It's only 924. That was Luke as a compiling author and Ezra as a compiling author. Remember, the early believers did not divide their Bibles into Older and Newer Testaments. They only had one contiguous volume of Scripture. So let's take our next slide. Associations from similarities between Ezra and Luke. Y'all probably already knew all of these. Associations undoubtedly were made among Jewish believers that had known the Tanakh from childhood, and Ezra would be in their recent history. This also points to the continuity of Scripture across what people have come to regard as two testaments. As Judah goes into this next slide, the reason we're really doing this is we want you to learn to make those connections, to operate out of the same base of information that the audience reading Acts had. When we're talking about the same base of information that the original audience had, we have our next slide. Associations from similarities, Deuteronomy and Acts. 
Both books can be viewed as the fifth book in the older and newer sections of the law. Both books move past a rebellion in their opening chapters, one being Judas and one being the Ten Spies. Both books feature a theophany that occurs on the same exact day in history, the Sinai Shavuot event, wow. or you may know it as Pentecost. Wow. Both books feature the supernatural leading of Adonai's people, vis-a-vis -vis the pillar of fire or the Holy Spirit. Both books' tenth chapter feature Jews loving Gentile aliens that are living among them. Both books begin with the actions and teachings of an amazing leader, Moses and Jesus, and deal with what must happen in the physical absence of that amazing leader. Seven, both books constitute the second time the law was made plain through the application of a new generation that also began the conquest of new lands. Y'all having fun? Yes. Can you hang in there for seven more minutes? The book of Acts is also going to inform our orthopraxy in the same way that Deuteronomy does. Deuteronomy comes after Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, but it brings clarity into the practice of the law presented in those books. Acts is really the same book as Luke consisting of Luke-Acts, and it follows Matthew, Mark, and John. It serves the same purpose in clarifying the practice of the law taught by Jesus. The book of Acts chronicles the practices of the early community as they journeyed in the way from Jerusalem to the ends of the world, and it does so in only 28 chapters. The challenge of our time is to reverse that road and go from the ends of the world all the way back to Jerusalem. Yeah. Can I show you what the Roman roads looked like in the first century? Yeah, yeah well, it didn't show up that well there. Could you see that? It would be blue. <laughs> Look, as we end our overview, and you prepare to engage with Acts chapter 1 next week, we want you to remember something. The way is a title for the walk of obedience that brings about the physical establishment of the kingdom of God on earth with Messiah as the king of Israel and grafted in nations as co-heirs and co-rulers. We are in that way. Come on. Now, we're going to read Psalm 67 and receive our call to action as we close together tonight. What is this whole study? It's a call to action. Everyone turn to Psalm 67 with us. We're going to start in verse 1 as we come to a close. Verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us, Salah, that your way, guys, that word for way is direct in the Hebrew. Some of your Bibles might translate it that your ways may be known. It's a very popular translation. It's also wrong. It is a singular way that your way may be known on earth. Doesn't that take a whole new insight now that you have the yeah, knowledge yes. that you have tonight? It's not the mannerisms of the Lord that we're making known. It's the way that the kingdom will be established on earth. Amen. Your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
as if you notice these first three verses, you'll see that verse 1 is the foundation for verse 2. Verse 1 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us. That is the foundation for His singular way being made known on the earth. The Jewish people receiving favor is going to be the thing that leads to the way being known on the earth Come on. among all people. The peoples will praise Adonai because of this manifesting itself on the earth. Let's take verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. What started with Israel has been expanded to include other nationalities alongside them, namely us, Gentiles. <laughs> this will require action. Say action. Action. Require action on our part to walk in the way as the early community did in the book of Acts. Yes. <coughs> they brought the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. Now we stand at the ends of the earth and we are tasked with bringing the gospel of the kingdom back towards the east. Amen. Then it will be said, this is verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Amen. Saints, in accordance with this psalm, our desire as we invite the pastors to come up and close us out is that together as we journey through the book of Acts and learn more about the way that we are followers of, that God might inspire us to see his name made known among the nations. Amen. That we might preach a message about the coming kingdom of God on the earth. That every man, every woman, every family in here, that we might understand what has actually been entrusted to us and our heartfelt prayers that God will empower us to bring it right back to the city that it all started in. Amen. Amen. Come on. Why don't you stand to your feet tonight? Now, how many were excited about tonight before you got here? How many of you forgot how much information gets thrown at you in a, in a Tuesday night? Okay. Do not mistake the fact that God has led us into the book of Acts for foundations simultaneously with giving us an understanding of the Balkan bow. These are not separate things and independent from each other. We're looking at the book of Acts being a call to action. We learned tonight some amazing things that would be enough if any one of these components were all that we learned. We learned that Acts could be called the actions of Jesus through his body on earth as empowered by his spirit bit lengthy, hard to fit in your pericopes there, but it's a more accurate picture. You learned that the early believing community was not a new religion. You learned tonight that we're going to reverse the road from Rome back to Jerusalem in the coming decades. You learned about walking in the way. You learned about when the Lord was saying, prepare the way for the Lord there in Luke chapter 3, referencing Isaiah 40. You have a better picture. We're just start. Can somebody say we're just starting to get a good picture? We're just starting. Yeah. To get a good picture. 
Tonight you learned about the kingdom. You learned about heptads of eschatological timing. Did I get that right, Pastor Judah? I was working on it. You learn about being walkers, people who are walking in the way. The way is a title for the walk of obedience that brings about the physical establishment of the kingdom of God on earth with Messiah as the king of Israel and grafted in nations as co-heirs and co-rulers. I want you to commit, each and every man and woman in this room, you're going to need to listen to this at least a couple of times between now and next Tuesday. I promise you, you didn't get it all. I'm not saying because I'm being mean to you. I didn't get it all either. So you know what I'm going to go do? I'm going to go, re- I'm going to go listen to it again. I'm going to go get the notes and I'm going to study it because I get the privilege of doing that with you. Don't pretend like you caught it all because none of us did. Is that okay just to get everybody free from that? You didn't get it. It's okay. But it's not okay for you to leave it there. Because we're going to be people who are walking in the way. And that doesn't mean we're going to hear it once and go, man, that was incredible. I'm off to my next event. We're going to dig into this because God has something amazing for us in the days ahead. Isn't it good that we get to stand here as Gentiles that participate with Israel? Yes. yes. That the mysteries of God being revealed yeah. is evidence in our presence with King Jesus. Yeah. So look, as we pray, pray with confidence. Amen. Pray with a celebratory uh, joy that declares to the heaven, heavenly realms of this mystery being revealed inside of us. And as we fellowship and as we lead, we are now armed with evidence in his word and in our lives of what they need to be rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the resurrection power and freedom that's found in his way. Are you guys ready? Yes. Mighty God, we thank you for your inclusion of us alongside Israel to participate in the glory and riches of your kingdom. What we say, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Through our feet, our hands, and our mouth. But we thank you for your spirit that leads us into holiness and into all truth. And as we search it out, we trust that you will reveal even more. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen.